Let's pray. Uh, well, yeah, Father, we thank you for our guests on Alpha, and that we thank you for your presence and your blessing on our away day uh, yesterday. And Lord, we ask that you would seal the work that you have done. We ask that you would do more, and we pray that your word would be in, have fallen into good soil that would bear lasting and eternal fruit. Uh, we pray now for ourselves as uh, we come to your word. Lord, um, open our ears and our hearts. Perhaps you want to say in your own heart, Lord, speak to me. Speak to me. Speak to me. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, James chapter 5, first five verses. Ready? Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. It's great this, isn't it? Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. This is difficult. This is a difficult passage because to one degree or another, all of us are rich. Even a homeless, unemployed person in the UK is richer than the majority of people on earth. Most, if not all, of the people in this room are within the richest 2% of people on earth. Congratulations. We, we, you, me, are potentially the people that James is telling to listen at this point in his letter. He is talking to us. It's difficult. It's difficult that this passage is even here, isn't it? Yeah? Some commentators have argued that this couldn't possibly be addressed to Christians, could it? It's so shocking. I mean, look at what, he's, what, he's, what they're being accused of. Hoarding, not paying wages, living in luxury and self-indulgence, fattening themselves at the cost of others, murdering innocent people who weren't against them. Surely, this is for the worldly, isn't it? This must be talking to people who are outside of Christ, outside of the church. Yes? No. That wonderfully comforting interpretation isn't available. It just doesn't work. Why address people who aren't there? What's, the most, what's one of the most repeated words as you read through the letter of James? I don't know if you've noticed, but in Greek, it's adelphos. 
brothers, brothers and sisters. And in the Greek, it's very strong. Do you know what a Delphus is? Do you know what a Delphus is in Greek? It's a womb. He's saying, you who are from the same womb. He's speaking figuratively. He addresses them as a Delphoi 17 times in this letter. Not talking to Christians. I'm sorry, that theory, that very comforting theory just doesn't stack up. So what is he saying? What is he condemning? What is God's word warning us against? Firstly, he's chiding them and he's chiding us if we're putting our trust, our confidence in our wealth. He says, you have hoarded wealth. Hoarding is a negative word. He doesn't say, you have saved. Do you remember go to the ant thou sluggard three weeks ago? Well, the ant, we read in Proverbs 6, saves for wintertime. The Bible isn't against saving. It's against hoarding. Saving, what's the difference? Is for a purpose. Hoarding is piling it up without a specific purpose, just for the pure pleasure of having it and watching it pile up. You have hoarded wealth. A maxim that we have found really helpful in our family is to remember that we are blessed not to hoard blessing, but to be a blessing. When you are blessed, when your blessing increases, will you raise the fence or extend your table? Secondly, he says, failing to pay what's due. Look, the wages you fail to pay are crying out against you. When you have work done, when you have bills to pay, recently we needed a plasterer. We had a leak and a, about a square metre of our kitchen ceiling rotted and had to come down and be replaced. We had a plasterer. He came and did a great job and a couple of days later his invoice turned up. So when do I pay it? End of the month? 30 days? Wait until he chases me? Wait until he's chased me twice? Oh, I'll let you work out the answer to that one. When do you pay? Do you know, people who love money don't like to let it go. He's saying, if you love money and hold back what you should release, it will rot your soul. If you set your heart on things that rust, your heart will rust. Thirdly, he says, you have lived in luxury and self-indulgence. Brace yourself, because you might not like this. God's word is saying it's extremely important for Christians to see that there is a line to be drawn between prudence and indulgence, between saving and hoarding. There's a difference between a healthy life of necessities and conveniences and a life of luxuries and self-indulgence. There's a line to be drawn. And I know what you want to say. Where's the line, Bri? Where's the line? So how many cars can a Christian family have? How big a home? 
How much can I spend on clothes in a year? Where's the line? Well, the Bible doesn't give us one. Not a really clear, easy to see line. Because the Bible was written for all people, in all places, at all times, in all cultures. So, you have to use your head. You have to listen to your heart. James is saying, in all this, he's saying, as he is right through the letter, where is the outworking of your faith? And at this section where he's saying, listen, he's saying, where is the outworking of your faith when it comes to your income and your wealth and your abilities? He's saying the outworking of your faith has not yet developed anywhere near the level where you have lost much, where you've sacrificed any of your physical comfort. You're still physically and financially comfortable. And so you're missing the point. The whole point of discipleship, the whole point of following Jesus. Jesus didn't call us for a cuddle just to make us feel warm and loved inside. Yes, he wants to, us to know that we're loved, but that's not the end of the story, is it? He called us to die and to be reborn into a new life, a radically diff different way of living, a radically different set of values, others before ourselves. Don't believe me? Look it up. Luke 9, 23. Jesus says, if anyone will follow me, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow, imitate me. James is saying, the outworking of your faith, guys, it really isn't costing you much. You're not going anywhere with God because you're holding too tight to the things of this world. You're too strong. You're too comfortable to be living a life energized by faith. Do you remember Jesus meeting the rich young ruler? Remember that story? This young man, he wants to follow Jesus. And, and he says, what, am I, what have I got to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. He says, yes, I do, and I've been following them all since I was a boy. Ba boom Isn't that great? And then Jesus says, he looked at, well, he looked at him and he loved him. And he loved him enough to tell him, go, one thing you lack, sell everything that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven. And then you come and follow me. And you probably know that the young man went away very sad because he was very rich. Is that Jesus' general instruction to all his followers? Do we all need to sell all that we have Give all our money, all our wealth, liquidate it to the poor and become homeless and destitute? No. 
This was a specific instruction to a specific individual because Jesus could see into his heart. He saw the hold. He saw the love that he had for his possessions and his position. Jesus isn't interested in robbing us of our possessions. He isn't interested in taking our possessions away. He doesn't need our stuff. He's interested in where our heart is. He's interested in what we love. He's interested in how we hold things. The things that God blesses us with, the things that he gives us, you know, give us power. Whether that's possession, money, giftings and abilities. These things exaggerate us. They extend us. If you have some money, you have some power. You can do things. You know, if you have enough money to run a car, you have some power. You know, you can get from A to B, you can give people lifts, you could serve other people. If you have money, even a little, it gives you power. It's like a fire. A fire can be very useful. You can warm yourself. You can cook on it. But a fire is also dangerous. Do you light a fire in the middle of your living room? Run the risk of burning your house down? No. Where do you have a fire? In the fireplace. In a safe place. We need to be like a fireplace. We need to hold the things that we have, the money that we have, safely. We need to be a safe place for the blessings that God has given us. We need to be a safe containers. Everything you have, everything I have, is a gift from God. And the question is, am I holding it well? Or am I clinging to my treasures? Or am I holding them with an open hand? If you hold well what you are already blessed with, what's likely to happen? What did Jesus say? To him who is faithful with little shall be invested more. How well are you holding the blessing of your income, your wealth, your abilities that God has already given you? Because the answer to that is a good indicator of how well you would be carrying the blessings that he has yet to give you. Or how well you would hold them if you were blessed with a great deal. You know, if you received a big legacy or if you won the lottery. Although I don't suppose you're doing the lottery. Enough there. So that's a different bee in my bonnet. How well would you hold that blessing? Hmm? Do you know what happens to lottery winners? Statistically, well, a third of them subsequently de declare bankruptcy. They often become estranged from their family and friends. They have a greater incidence of depression, of substance abuse, divorce, and suicide. It's a recognized condition. It's called sudden wealth syndrome. It's an analysis of failure to carry well. 
In contrast, in his book, The Millionaire Mind, Thomas Stanley reports on a wide study he undertook of people who have built wealth by their own efforts, the kind of 10 million plus bracket. And what he finds is they are happy. They are generally healthy. They take up special offers, they go to the sales, they keep their cars for some years, they live quietly, and they stay married. They have learned to be safe containers. <clears throat> Question for you to consider. If Father gives you an increase, an increase in wealth, an increase in income, an increase in your family, an increase in responsibility, an increase in your position, a promotion, Will I carry it well? Will I do a good job with what Father is blessing me with? Will I hold with an open hand, ready to release if he so directs? Now, I hope these thoughts are helpful. But they're not the real antidote to what James is describing. What's the real antidote? to what James is describing. If you desire to know the presence of God in your life, if you desire to know the power of God on your life, if you desire to know the anointing of God through your life, there are three things that you must build into your life. And they are in... They are integrity, humility, and generosity. These are the three great antidotes to the three great temptations, the three great traps in life. Integrity, humility, and generosity. Do you know, in the Bible, God gives us approximately 7,000 promises. Promises of success, satisfaction, blessing, and so on. 7,000 promises to you. But every promise, pretty much every promise, has a premise. If you do this, God says, I will do that. When I was baptized in 1966, they gave me a verse. A scripture from Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct. He will make straight your paths. Premise, 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 promise. Some few years later, I discovered just a couple of verses later... Honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Premise, premise, promise, promise. If you do this, I'll do that, God says. And, well, just a few years later, after I got those promises, I got my first proper job. And one of the best things that ever happened to me in life was on the train on my way up to Lombard Street and on the Waterloo and City Line to Bank, I read in my first month of employment a little book called God's Smuggler. This man who courageously took Bibles into communist countries where the Bible was banned 
And one of the things I learned from this book is this man who had no salary, he was just trusting God, but everything that he received, he gave away one-tenth. I thought, I'd never heard of this before. I thought, how interesting, that's great. I can do that. And my first salary, brace yourself, was 80 pounds a month. Well, I had good A-level grades, so I got extra. And I could do the maths. I could divide by 10, eight pounds. And as my salary went up, so I could do the maths again. Wind forward six years, and I'm in my mid-twenties. And I've got a brand new baby, newly born baby, a 17-month-year-old, obviously a wife at home who's looking after them, and a great big fat mortgage, because I work for a bank, and I could borrow more than the average person. And instead of paying 15% interest, which was the mortgage rate in the 1970s, I paid only 2%. And one morning before work, I'm in a little church in Eldon Street, and I just have my quiet time there, and I'm saying to the Lord, so Lord, oh, Lord, it's going well. Thank you. I've got two children, a wife, a home. I'm doing the exams. I'm passing the exams for the bank. Is this it? Is this what you want me to be doing? And I can only say there was this inaudible but unmistakable voice. And it said, no, Brian, I want you to be a teacher. And I'll need to cut the story short. But I said over time, how's this going to work? And I was reminded of a conversation the disciples must have had with Jesus and said, so if we follow you, where will we sleep? And what will we wear? And what will we eat? And Jesus responds with Matthew 6:33, which if you haven't memorized it, why not? <laughs> Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be yours as well. Paraphrased, make it your first priority to do God's will. And in addition to knowing that you're in the center of his will, the other things that you need will be added to you. So I got a university place. I resigned my job. The mortgage went to 15%. In those days, we got a student grant. But the student grant actually didn't cover the monthly standing orders because the, the mortgage went through the roof. And I imagined that, and I expected that we would sell the two and a half bedroom terraced house we had in Elm Road, and we'd go and live in the back bedroom at my mum's house. And at the end of two years, halfway through the four years of full-time study, we did sell the house. We sold 69 Elm Road, and we bought 55 Lime Grove, which, by square footage, was twice the size. And at the end of four years, we had four children. We still had the mortgage. We had no debt. Other than that, and I walked into my first teaching job in 1980, literally the Lord dropped me into my place. And it's an incidental thing, but on a salary, as if I had been already teaching 10 years. Don't ask me how we did that. In fact, I can't explain how does a guy in those circumstances get through four years of full-time study and end up living in a house that was twice the size of the one he started with? Do you know the answer? God's divine alchemy. You see, when the grant check arrived in September, 
1976, the question was, do we tithe the grant check? Because it's not enough to pay the standing orders, leave alone food. Answer, yes. So three times a year for four years, 12 grant checks. The first thing that we did, because it's first fruits, we take a tenth of the grant check and we give it to the Lord. Now, I'm far enough away from that now, because that young man was 45 years ago, to be able to say, you know, that's what we did. And I'm delighted to tell you that's what we did, but I'm also delighted to tell you that what I'm telling you is, is not about me. It's, it's God's divine alchemy. God is faithful. Through the little obedience and generosity we were able to practice, God poured out an overflowing blessing. He showed himself faithful to his promises, and incidentally, he has ever since. Do you know that there are more promises related to generosity than any other subject in the Bible? Generous with money, talent, time, energy, praise, every area of your life. Why is God so interested in us learning about generosity? Because generosity is love in action. You can't give, sorry, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. If I tell Julie I love her, but then I mean, and not generous with her, then I'm not loving her. If I'm not a generous person, I'm not a loving person, because love gives. God so loved you that he gave his only son. Generosity is love in action. Believe is an important word in the Bible. Do you know it occurs 272 times? Pray is an important word in the Bible. It occurs 371 times. Love is an important word in the Bible. 714. Give. 2,152. Why? Because God is a giver. Everything, everything you have in life, everything is a gift from God. If God wasn't generous, you and I would have nothing. Your heart would stop beating. There'd be no air to breathe, no food to eat, no mind to think. Do you know, even your ability to earn, because you must, some of you are thinking, well, I earned it, didn't I? I go out to work. Your ability to earn, where'd you get that from? It was a gift from God. When one of my girls, one of my daughters was about six, I took her, I had to take, I took her with me on a, on a road, on a journey, and I gave her a box of jelly babies to help her with the journey. And we've been going a little while, and I fancied a jelly baby, and I reached across and said, Beck, give me, a, give me a jelly baby. She went, no, they're my jelly babies! <laughs> and I realised there were a few things that she needed to understand. Firstly, that I am the giver of all jelly babies. <laughs> if it wasn't for me going to the shop and, you know, you know there would be no jelly babies. Second thing that she needed to understand was I have the power to remove 
all jelly babies. Yeah? And the third thing she needed to understand is that if I wanted to, I could go to Tesco and get the biggest trolley and fill it up with jelly baby packets. I could, couldn't I? Yeah. You know, there are, there are some things that we need to understand. God doesn't need your money. It all belongs to him anyway. You didn't have it before you came into the world, and you won't have it when you leave the world. He's just loaned it to you for a while. It's all his. He is the source of all the jelly babies. Everything you have in your life. If God didn't love you, what would you have? Zilch. Zero. Nada. He could take it all away from you instantly, or he could multiply it by a hundred. He just wants you. And he wants you to learn to be unselfish. Why? Because Father is a giver. He's generous. Jesus, the Son, is generous. And Father loves to see the likeness of Jesus in you. God wants us to be like him, generous. Now, in, in just two weeks' time, 28th of November, it will be my born-again birthday. I'll be 56. And throughout these 56 years, I've experienced God's faithfulness and his generosity. I have learned that God is faithful. I've learned that God is generous. And I've also learned that generosity is good for you. Three things. Firstly, generosity honours God. Honour the Lord with your substance, with the first fruits. That's the first standing order after the salary goes in. Not waiting till the end of the month to see if you can afford to honour God. Generosity honours God. Giving is an act of worship and it recognises that everything that we have is a gift from God. Proverbs 14, whoever is generous to the needy honours God. Secondly, generosity draws me closer to God. Whatever I invest in, that's what I'm interested in. If I invest my time and my effort and my money in golf, well, it's pretty clear what I'm interested in, isn't it? If I invest in God and in his work and in others, it draws me closer to him. Wherever my money goes, wherever my time goes, that's where I'm drawn to. There's a reason why Proverbs 3 says first fruits. The purpose of tithing, of first fruits giving, is to teach you to put God first in your life. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Wherever you put your money, that's where your heart's going to be. You want to be closer to God? Put some money there. John Wesley, you know, founded the Methodist Church, lived in the 18th century. He was a man who understood generosity. He made 30 pounds a year, and he gave three. The next year, he made 40 pounds. He gave 10 the next year, he made 70 pounds. He gave 40. Before the end of his life, because he wrote books, 
He was making 1,400 pounds a year. That would be seven figures today. He still lived on 30 pounds. Thirdly, generosity makes me more like the most generous person who ever lived. Jesus gave his whole life. We have the opportunity for forgiveness, for reconciliation with God, salvation, eternal life. All these things are available to us because of the generosity of Jesus. Every time you give for others, whether that's money, time, energy, you become more like Jesus. Your heart grows bigger. You become more like Jesus. Wesley says God has bound himself to do nothing on earth save in answer to prayer. You know, there's a bigger picture. Remember, I was speaking a few weeks ago and just reminding us that God put the earth, the world, into the care of mankind. Mankind fell into disobedience and creation fell. It's groaning. You can see that. And God determined to redeem the world, to bring it back to him, to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth through man. That's why Jesus had to be a man. And that's why our prayers are so important. God releases his kingdom, his will on earth through prayer, through us, through man and woman, through our prayers They are the means by which God's will and his blessing and power are released on the earth. We're the channel. And in the same way, he releases his bounty through generosity. I've seen this principle working for the last 50 years. It's been a revelation to me of this principle. Sometimes when we've given sacrificially, The Father, our Father, sometimes almost immediately has created a way to bless us. Sometimes financially, sometimes differently. And I'm not advocating a prosperity gospel. I'm not on a funding drive. I'm not asking for money. All I'm doing this morning is reminding you what God says in his word. And I found his word to be reliable. I want you to know that after this shocking reading in James 5, which I hope shocked you, there is an antidote. We have, we have a very rich father. We have a very wise father. And what does a wise, rich father do with his children? Does he spoil them? No. He trains them. One step at a time. So that in time, he can trust them with more of the ranch. He can trust them with greater resources, greater power, greater authority. When his children learn to trust him, obey him, and learn how to be good stewards, safe containers, good holders of blessing, and they put their confidence in him, and not in their possessions, their bank balance, their assets, and practice generosity. God is able to release more, greater resources, sometimes huge resources. Perhaps um, Anthony and the worship team would like to come and make your way up here. 
I'm four minutes over time, but we're all right, I think. Um, we watched a film the other night called Captive, a real uh, one. I, we love watching films that are, you know, real things that have happened. And it's about a girl who was um, kind of kidnapped by somebody who was a, a, a killer. And, and, but in the centre of this story was the book. And, this, and the book, <laughs> the book was Rick Warren's A Purpose Driven Life. And I don't know whether you know, I'm just going to say briefly, Rick Warren had already learned about stewardship and generosity. And he, I've heard him tell how he wrote this book, how it, he was in tears because he's sitting there saying, he's tired, he said, I'm not this good. <laughs> I'm just not this, this is great, I'm not this good. And really, the Lord dictated this book to him. That's his testimony. And it's an amazing book. It's changed lots of people's lives. The book is available on Amazon for $12.99. If you haven't read it, do read it. A Purpose Driven Life. But how much of that $12.99 do you think Rick Warren gets? Let's say he gets a pound. How many copies have sold? 50 million. Now, God gave Rick Warren that book because he knew that Rick Warren was a safe container. He knew that he could hold the blessing. And I, and I happen to know that Rick Warren, actually, instead of giving a tenth and living on 90%, he actually gives 90% and lives on a tenth and has done for quite a long time. See, God is a generous father and his resources are beyond our imaginings. He just wants our heart, our obedience. If you want God's blessing in your life, his power on your life, and his anointing through your life. Integrity, humility, and generosity. Amen.